The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs originally aired on our former host network. We're now a fully independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm your host, Andrew Friedman. I want to get right to our first guest, Chef Alex Stupak, so I'm going to just briefly introduce this show and introduce myself. The show is just what the name says. It's me talking to chefs. And if you don't know me, I've spent most of my career writing about chefs, I've collaborated on a few dozen books with them, and I've written a couple of books of my own about them. And most recently, I co-hosted the current event show, The Front Burner, with Jimmy and Andrew here on Heritage Radio Network for three seasons, just ending this past spring. On this show, I'm going to do deep dive interviews with chefs and really try to get at what makes them tick and how they became who they are on the plate. We'll also veer off into whatever tangents present themselves, from shop talk to life talk and anything in between. My first guest, and I'm thrilled to have him, is Chef Alex Stupak of Empeon Restaurants in New York City. Now, if you don't know Alex, he's had a fascinating career. He was the opening pastry chef of Grant Atkins's Alinea Restaurant in Chicago, and then pastry chef for Wiley Dufresne at WD50 in New York City. And then he did one of the great 180s of all time, turning to Mexican food, turning to the savory side of the menu when it was time to open his own restaurant. And that restaurant was Empeon. He now has several Empeon restaurants in New York City, and he also wrote a terrific book, Tacos, Recipes and Provocations, with co-author Jordana Rothman. Alex and I free associated a lot in our conversation, but that should keep you pretty well oriented as you listen. And that's it. Here we go with the first episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs, my interview with Chef Alex Stupak of Empeon Restaurants in New York City. Please enjoy. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the first episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm honored. <laughs> the way I love to usually begin an interview with someone who does what you do um, is to ask, when you think back uh, to your childhood, I know for you it started pretty young, um, whether or not you knew it at the time, when you think about the first sort of pinch, I guess, that led you to what you ended up doing, whether you would call that food, eating, um, a taste of something, restaurants. W when you look back now, what, do you, what was sort of the, the spark uh, it, that started you down this path? Um, I, I have it in my head. I, I identified it. Um, so I was rather young. I was probably eight years old. Uh -huh. And my parents bought me this uh, cookbook for kids. So I, uh, I thumbed through it, and I was basically at the mercy of whatever ingredients we had in our home 
So I wanted to cook something, and I found a recipe for Russian dressing, which mm-hmm. we had all the ingredients for. It was uh, ketchup and mayonnaise and relish. Um, so I, <laughs> I mixed those things together and made Russian dressing, and I thought it was brilliant. And then um, there was a head of uh, there was a head of purple cabbage in in the refrigerator. So I decided to chop that up and dress the salad with this Russian dressing I just made. And I handed it to my mother yeah. and said, "I made you lunch," and it made her smile. Um, and I know that sounds really cheesy, but that that was kind of a, a a time for me when I realized, well, you can you can cook for people and it will make them happy. Yeah, this is like a quintessential chef. A lot of, you hear a lot of chefs talk about that. Exact the way you just put it. Hundred percent. I mean, and again, it's it, it turns into something else. It turn it can turn into passion, ego, business, all those things. But I think if you talk to most chefs, like they they still love cooking Thanksgiving dinner at home, or they mm-hmm. still love cooking for their family or their friends. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually amazed. I am neighbors with Jonathan Benno, who used to be uh, the chef at Per Se, yep. obviously, and getting ready to open a new place. And I mean, the guy works really hard still, and. W- we get invited over to their place all the time. Uh, spon- we live six houses away spontaneously for dinner, and I'm still I'm amazed. Here's a guy in his mid-40s. He's been at it since he was a teenager, and seemingly his favorite thing to do on his day off is cook yeah, you I, know, I, for a handful of people. I mean, I, it's crazy. I've heard things like this where people are like, well, that's the last thing you want to do on your day off is cook. But it's the, the real, I mean, from my experience, the real work of the restaurant is not the cooking. It's the dealing with... Um, those employees, it's dealing with um, the idiosyncrasies of customers, it's dealing with um, the business factor, I don't know, property tax or rising rents or um, the fear of critics. That's actually the real, um, those are the real ulcer givers, but the actual like mincing of a shallot or or sprinkling salt over meat, that's that's the pleasure of it. Yeah. Well, take me back a little bit. You grew up where and and how? What, what were the sort of circumstances um, of your I, childhood? I, I grew up in Lemonster, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. central, is- central Massachusetts, about an hour away from Boston. Okay. Um, birthplace of Johnny Appleseed. Okay. Uh, place where the pink flamingo lawn ornament was apparently invented. Um, so you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> And that's it. I mean, I, I had a pretty typical boring upbringing. I, I didn't. Um, I wasn't brought up with any particular culture or uh-huh. cuisine. Yeah. Um, it, it was all pretty diluted by the time I was born. Uh, and that's it. I I had gotten jobs uh, at a pretty young age as a dishwasher because I was saving up money to to get a car. Yeah. And I also had the good fortune of uh, going to a school that. Well, I went to a, a trade school. Um, they don't like to call them anymore that they call right. them vocational schools. But I, I got to go to a trade school where I could circumvent um, things that I thought were superfluous, like learning Latin or French. And right. you could study carpentry or plumbing or whatever. And I, I, I fell into culinary arts. Although they didn't call it that. They call it food services, which is a little more sterile and depressing. Was that before <laughs> or after the dishwashing job? Uh, that was after. After. Yeah, so, I, I got a dishwashing job at a pretty young age, around the age of 12. Yeah. I started I read, washing dishes. I read this somewhere. There was some subterfuge involved, or you had to convince them you were older or something like this? Oh, I just I, I, I just gave them um, my, like, I forget how I did it. I, I filled out the job application. Yeah. I told them I was 14, but I was too stupid to put the wrong date. The, 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 I, I was too stupid to falsify the date. So... Um, they handed the, the, the application back to me and this says, this says you're 12. And they were like, why don't you just change this from 1980 to 1978? And I was like, I did it. So it was kind of a, 
It, like, I mean, these are the type of places where you get paid cash yeah. under the table. <laughs> what kind of what kind of student were you before you switched over to trade school, whatever you want to call it? Um, not that good. Not that good. I mean, I, I went to Catholic school up until the fourth grade, and I was a straight-A student until the fourth grade. But then um, once I started going into public school, things got a little bit more uh, socially interesting. And, uh, I mean, I always did okay, but grades started to slip. Um, high school, once I got to high school, I had such a finite focus on cooking, and I was so certain yeah. that what's, that's what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, that I was, you know, you have a meeting with the guidance counselor and they're like, yeah, well, you're young and you don't know. But I was always very much, yes, I know. So there's really no point for me to take the SATs because the college that I'm going to go to doesn't require them. Right. Um, whether that's wise or not, probably not. But I, I was pretty steadfast. You already had your sights set on the CIA at that point? Yeah. Were you, um, was, was dishwashing the job that kind of gave you your real interest in professional cooking I mean was not re- I mean to me washing dishes um, was just a means to to make money to save up for a car I mean this was an interesting time though because you would um, when you were young you would watch uh, PBS on Sundays and you would watch all the cooking shows that don't exist anymore you would actually watch Julia Child and Jacques Pepin yep. get in arguments right. on camera yeah or you would watch um, in, in Julia's kitchen with master chefs. And it's like the first time you saw Rick Bayless or Charlie Trotter or Jean George, or I mean, name them. They were all there and she launched all of them or these, um, these really old, these cool cooking shows like, um, in, in San Francisco with master chefs. Right. Or the great chef series maybe, or that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was pretty cool. I mean, to watch someone make a chocolate mousse or something. Yeah. Pretty mind blowing. And you, uh, so what, what, how young were you when you committed to wanting to do this? I, I knew I was going to cook for the rest of my life in some capacity by the age of 14. When I was a freshman in, in high school, uh-huh. I, I knew that that was going to be my thing. And did you have a sense of what that even meant at that age? Or? No, I didn't have a sense of what it meant, and I didn't have a sense of what I would do. Um, I, was, I was a big fan of writing lists, for like writing fictitious menus yep. all the time. So if I had a job at a country club, if I still had that fantasy menu, it was completely influenced by country club food. I was Is writing, that right? Yeah, I'd be writing about like steamship roasts and, uh, you know, tricolor rice pilaf and, uh-huh. and things like this. I've heard you use the word creativity a lot in other interviews you've done. Would, I mean, it seems like this was a piece of it for you even at a young age. I mean, when you talk about like doing menus like the way you were just describing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, creativity has always been important to me. Um, I think that Look, I mean, fast forward, you don't get a job for someone like Wiley Dufresne or Grant Ackett's by yeah. accident. That that's You have to try for that. You have to audition for it. Mm-hmm. And those two chefs in two very different ways are both very rigid about what creativity actually is. Is that something uh, that gets discussed? I mean, we'll talk about this more when we get to that point in your career. But is that something that gets discussed in a... Um, deliberate manner yeah, amongst it, it, w- with those guys and with other people who are in the kitchens. Is that part of the culture? Yeah, when you work there, working in working at Alinea or working at WD fifty, it's it's a conscious dialogue. Yeah. Um, people think of I think from my perspective, people think of creativity as um, sort of a whimsical word, yeah. like a carefree 
Right. Like, oh, I just want to be creative. Like it's like a thing. Like yeah. Like for me, for, that would be creative writing, which um, always I always hated that term, even as a right. Kid. Like it's this idea that creativity or the or dedication to it sets you free. Um, but from my perspective, I'm not trying to sound like a downer, but to me, it actually it's much more rigid and it locks you into a much tighter set of parameters. That's interesting because because it's about newness. Yeah. And it's about um, how do you get people to perceive the newness of it. And that, that's a very complicated endeavor. Um, and again, style changes. So right. what I was doing as a pastry chef underneath guys like that is now very different than what would be deemed creative today. Um, mm-hmm. there, there, is a, there is a fashion to it. Um, there is a vogue to it, um, which sometimes I don't like. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't like the idea of that, but, um, how do you mean that? You mean that you meaning I, I like, again, I, it's, it's complicated for me to answer clearly, but the idea, like, I, I believe that all things were new at one point Mm -hmm. and, and that new thing that was highly creative, innovative, um, groundbreaking, that's now a mainstay or now is just part of society. Those are actually the most creative things in my mind, because they were the most impactful. They were, they, they were the most um, game-changing. Yeah. So in that way, it shouldn't be um, changing stylistically. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not a clean answer because um, taste change, society changes, um, what restaurants think of as luxury or approachable changes right. over time as well. So a lot of what would have to make up the DNA of a fine dining restaurant in um, any given place in the 90s is very different. That might that th- those those um, those flourishes or those touches might now seem onerous today. They, right. they, they might seem troublesome or annoying or um, elitist today. Yeah. So it, it's inter- it's interesting how so maybe the offering as a chef that we're trying to concoct it is a good thing that you're you're paying attention to which way the wind's blowing. I hope it's this interesting make- though. I mean, I get what you're saying, but it seems to me like there's there's two, so you're talking you're basically talking about a dialogue, right, between what you would what you might want to try, sure, what your path is. I mean, not to be pretentious about it, but what your sort of you know path where you are today as a as a chef as a creative person where that's brought you to a new idea you want to try, and then you have to think about how that's going to be met. It sounds like this is what you're saying to me. Yeah. By the public. Um, and then there's also the added piece, which I know nobody likes to talk about, of commerce, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is it going to sell um, versus the critical piece? Yeah. Again, it's um, a lot of people hate it when um, chefs, uh, media people, a lot of people hate when you start talking about food as art. Yeah. Um, I'm actually a fan of the idea, but I, but I get why that can seem pretentious. But like, again, like the commerce side, look, so long, like cash flow is king. It, it, like if you have ideas that you want to express. Yeah. And by the way, there's many, most restaurants don't give a shit about this. Most restaurants are just, they you are just commercial. The overwhelmingly number of restaurants. Right. The businesses that serve food in the world. But, but for me, right. like all my restaurants, whether it be deemed as something simple or, or, or whatever, like, it, like to me, it's like so long as there's money in the till, yeah. you still have time left on the clock to prove your point. So you have to sell in order for that to happen. It's yeah. different. It's different than, um, again, yes, you can paint a painting, and that painting could sit on a gallery or it could sit in storage, 
and you're not paying rent on that. Whereas like a, a restaurant is more like a, a, a three ring circus that you got to keep going and you got to yeah. pay, you got to pay for, you got to pay for the people on the floor that are facing the customers, but you have to pay for all this nuts and bolts stuff mm-hmm. behind. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to compare it that way. Yeah. I mean, when you use the word art a minute ago, do you think of what you, do you think of cooking as an art? Um, I believe facets of it can, can be perceived that way. And those would be what? Um, for me, it's the overall point. So when I was a pastry chef, it was the dish. Mm-hmm. It was this one dish. Whereas now, um, one of the challenges I face is I can't think of the, the dish anymore. I can think about the dishes and I can think of them in the environment. And for me, the art of it that I, I would be trying to nail is like, are you making people feel the way you, you're, you, you intend? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, but are you talking about it? Because for me, you know, food at a certain, I would definitely put your food in this category. There's, um, I mean, there, ultimately you're going to eat it, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is always, the people sure. who have an issue calling it art, to me that's always whether they realize it or not, I feel like that's, where, that's the crux of the issue, is that you're, it's something you're eating. Um, yes. It doesn't, which has all kinds of, that means several things, right? It means it's not going to exist in a minute. Um, it also means that it's nourishment, it's food. And I think that ultimately, if you push people who don't like that, applying that word to it, mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot well, of them, where it comes from for a lot it's, of them. It's tricky. I mean, because again, like uh, art is meant to evoke an emotion. That's not necessarily, a, it necessarily has to be a positive emotion. So that's where it gets tricky calling food art because uh, like, Food ultimately is meant to be pleasurable. Yes. Uh, a restaurant experience is meant to be pleasurable. So if it gets so off the deep end that you're trying to, I don't know, emote sadness or right. disdain or yeah. or whatever, well then gloom. Yeah, then, then I'm <laughs> then I, I personally am not a fan. Yeah. But um through comfort and familiarity and hospitality and alcohol and yes. you know, warm lighting, yeah. if you can romance people in that way, if you can seduce people in that way right. to now start eating or considering things differently, yeah. I guess that's sort of the art or the, the magic that I'm after. Yeah. But I guess what I, what I was going to start, what I was starting to ask a second ago is there's to me, so there's the visual piece, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the most art. I mean, maybe there's also an auditory component or something like that. Sure. Most art is, uh, it's visual, right? So you have that initial um, the graphic effect of this plate is put in front of you that might elicit a certain response. Um, and then there's what happens when you actually, well, you smell it, I guess, mm-hmm. and you taste it. Um, when you talk about evoking an emotion, are you talking about that visual piece or are you talking about the whole experience of seeing it, it eating it, it? What I was just talking about is the entire... From start to finish. The, the entire experience at the restaurant. Yeah. So like, here's, here's a good example. Um, I actually hate eating in my own restaurants just because it, it makes me very anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to last week. I, my, my daughter was getting baptized and the godparents were in town and right. my wife Lauren was like, well, we're taking them out to eat at our, your, your new restaurant. So we're yeah. going. So I sat there um, and I actually really loved the experience. And but the, like, this is, sounds weird, but like sometimes you, um, you start on a quest, but you've been on it for so long that you almost started to lose sight of what it was. Yeah. And this meal like actually brought it right back into play for me because we, it's an, it, it was an expensive meal, uh, but there were tacos on the table. Yeah. And it didn't feel bougie. It didn't feel, it felt great. It felt like what, it reminded me of what we've been trying to do with Empe on this entire time where we're like, 
if you go to an Italian restaurant, you have antipasti primi secundi, right? You're going to yep. get that pasta as your middle course. It's like, that's what the taco is trying to be at my restaurants. And it felt so, it, like it felt right. And I like, now I, I looked at all that and I go, well, is everyone getting an experience like this? And the answer is no. So it's like, okay, well now how do I go back to the restaurant and tweak it to, to start to coax that behavior yeah. without giving a set of instructions? Like right. it, it's important for me, look, opening a tasting menu only restaurant, no choice of food, show up with a dress code. Yes, you can do that. And to varying degrees of success people have, but that's, I, I want to change um, eating culture in New York City in a very small personal way, meaning 30 years ago, Italian cuisine was not as important in New York City as it is now. But try to take, as a New Yorker, someone who identifies themselves as a New Yorker, try to take their Italian restaurant away from New York. Try yeah. to take their sushi away from New York. So you see what I'm saying? Like 30 years isn't that long of a period sure. of time. Yeah. Now that's fascinating because people wouldn't love their New York as much anymore. So we hear over and over and over again, there is no good Mexican food in New York City. At this point, I think that's false. Um, yeah. at, at, but think about it. If we can be a part of 30 years from now, it's like, well, New York City has its own version of Mexican cuisine, the same way it has its own version of fine dining or Italian or all the, and all these different iterations at different price points. Yeah. Well, that's exciting because now you're talking about um, a more permanent change. Yeah. It's also a bit of some, kind of an, uh, aud not audacious, but it's an ambitious statement to make when you say you want to change New York dining culture a little. I mean, that, that's been part of the mission part for of you from, yeah. the, from the go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, like, look, here's the, here's the reality. Um, to me, it's actually insane not to try that because let's just talk about it. Odds are if you open a restaurant, you're going to fail. You are going to close. Odds are against you. Yeah. And if you do succeed, if you, if you look at the profit margin in compared to other businesses, it sucks as a business. Yeah. So there has to be passion behind it, um, but simultaneously, like, there, like all the risks, signing a commercial lease, having your name on a liquor license, um, dealing with the human element, uh, to me, there has to be a greater uh, bet that you're trying to make. And maybe you, maybe, like, but think about it. If worse comes to worse is you failed at proving your point, yeah. but you still had a successful business, well, I suppose that's not a sad story, but... Well, it, it, just, it could it, be for you. It, it, it would be for me, but it's for me, it's a, to not have some sort of chosen deeper meaning to your mission yeah. is kind of crazy, whatever, whatever that is. At what point in your career did you realize what you're saying right now? Because, you know, it's interesting. You talk about, obviously, young line cooks, right? You don't make any money. Yeah. The live, you probably don't live in the, especially if you're in a big city, you're not living in the best. Li so there, at that level, you're in it for the passion, right? Because mm -hmm. why else are you living like that and doing that work? Um, you know, here you are, you, you know, behind several successful restaurants, still in some way talking about it, you know, on a higher plane, but in similar terms. Was there some point where you realized this is just sort of a fact of the business no, at no it, matter what level you're operating, that, that you have to have this um, kind of personal uh, investment in it? Yes. I, I mean, I... That that never was going to go away? You weren't going you know to transcend that at some point, cross some sort of magical line into this promised land? No. I mean, like, when you're young, you, you're thinking about it in a very rudimentary level, which is just kind of like, well, um, my hands are cut, my arms are burnt, um, and I work, I, I can't 
there, there is no chance of having a girlfriend of any sort. Right. Um, for, just because you work 80 hours a week. Yeah. And any time that a normal quote unquote human being is off or on vacation, you are working. Yeah. So, uh, so you have to realize, um, at some point, even at a young age, like consciously, well, why the hell, what the hell's keeping me going? Um, as it evolves into, having your own restaurant or, um, more interestingly, multiple restaurants, the, the, the problems sort of shift, but like the, the emotions stay the same, mm-hmm. meaning, I don't know how to say it. Like, it, like, even though like, look, it's just, let's just say like five years ago, I would not be able to ha- even take time away from work to sit here and talk to you. Now I can. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm out of the system or out of the matrix. As a matter of fact, you actually, at this level, you have no free mental time, and just um, like imagine the idea of like every time the phone rings, you're you're you get this sort of like pain in you your stomach up. because yeah. what what happened? Like that's the like what happened? It's like did someone slip and fall? Right. Um, is a customer upset? Did we mi- miss a critic? Um, did a integral piece of equipment break? What like like it, so? And again, as you grow, though, like something like that, at least one thing like that will happen yeah. every day. Yeah. So again, so compare that negativity to, well, I'm a line cook who's burnt and cut and never gets any time off. It's kind of the same thing. Right. And the passion that's keeping you going is kind of the same thing. Right. I feel like now I intellectualize that passion differently. Whereas like if you had talked to me when I was, you know, 18, all I cared about was like, well, I'm going to be a chef and I'm going to get, you know, like, well, we didn't know about Michelin stars back then, like, but like, cause they hadn't come to America yet. But like, I was just like, well, I'm going to be the greatest chef in the world. Um, just a, just sort of an ignorant, big audacious statement. Whereas now it's just, you start to really, as you get older and you get more ingrained in this, you become more aware of everything that has been done, or at least you should have everything yeah. that has been done historically and what's happening right now and really questioning your place in all of this, yep. your, your specialness in all of this. Um, and it has to, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's unique and it's complicated. And, uh, but does this all make sense? Totally. It's like, yeah. So like maybe when you're younger, you're not conscious of it. Yeah. I mean, the thing I wonder, which is sort of a cliche question is, is there a part of you that likes this aspect of it? I mean, I feel like a lot of people like being able to sur- you like being yes. able to survive the brutal service as a line cook. You like being able, you know, does that translate into the, yeah, I, your, I, your current role? Do you like those, you know, are you an adrenaline junkie? When, yes, are there parts when, of you that get off on, on coming through a crisis? Yes. So when asked, I say no. And if my wife is close by, she says, you're full of shit. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yes, I, she, like, I, the, the truth is, is that if we didn't have all this, um, if I didn't have this sort of tumultuous life, yeah, I'd probably get depressed. I'd probably get bored That's or depressed or or something. Yeah. So you actually um, you like your life very full. Yeah. I, someone told me once a, um, a a psychologist or someone told me once that I, I tend I seem to thrive on adversity. Mm-hmm. So, but it's it's self it's apparently self manufactured adversity because you don't need to. You know what I mean? It's it, like, look, let's just talk about the, the, the silliness of this. It's like you're opening a restaurant in New York City and you're striving to be relevant. Why are you pissed off that the critics are showing up on day one? You know what I mean? It's right. like you, the, you did the thing that makes them do that. Well, it's funny. I, 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 I jotted down. I don't know where it came from, but I was getting ready to talk to you today. And, you know, we would talk to I will we'll back into the, the switch. But obviously you come you you 
were not originally in the pastry world, then you were in a very high-end, very public uh, part of the pastry world at, at Alinea and at WD in New York. And then um, uh, when you made the switch to Mexican food, the line I read was that you felt like you need, maybe it was in your book, you needed to do something provocative. And I you, did. You wanted to ruffle some feathers. That, that, but that, when you make the comment you just made about the adversity being self-created, uh, I, I, my mind goes right to that. Yeah, it is. It, it is self-created. Um, yeah, so provocation is an important part of what Empeon does. And Mexican cuisine is provocative. Um, people, it's, it's our neighbor to the south. Yep. Um, people somehow, um, many people have formed vehement opinions about it. And it's, it's like politics or religion in some way where like people like in it, you get it from all sides. You get it from, um, I mean, think about it this way. I have many employees, um, a very large percentage of my employees are Mexican. So they have opinions on Mexican cuisine and they're all different based on where they grew up. And my mother-in-law is Mexican and she has opinions on Mexican cuisine and someone who was born and raised in LA and has their favorite Al Pastor taco stand is now in New York City. They have opinions on it, and it's it, it puts you in a it puts you in an interesting place. And for me, it was it was definitely engineered um, because I knew the dialogue couldn't run out. Now, to be clear, it wasn't like I picked Mexican out of a hat. Right. This wasn't like a sterile clinical. Um, I was touched by this cuisine, and it does speak to me. Yeah. At so in so many different ways and at so many different levels, I just find it fascinating. Um, and again, I'm a weird messenger of it. I get, I get the package doesn't line up. So when people try to ask me, like they ask me like, well, why Mexican? And I can't give them the concise answer. Um, it, but if I say like, well, my, my wife's Mexican. Well, they're like, oh, I get it. But that's actually not the reason why. I mean, Lauren was definitely a, a an initial portal into it. Yeah. But, um, it, it, it's very complicated. It's, it's very complex, but, um, but the, well, you know, it's funny. I heard this great line you, a million years ago. Stephen King said people come up to him and say, why horror? And his answer was, what makes you think I have a choice? Right. You know, which right. I always thought yeah. was such a brilliant answer. That is a good answer. I might have to steal that. But again, it's like, it's also, I mean, because of the nature of Mexican cuisine in New York City, it's also a provide, like, it's like, I have no passion or interest in opening American brasserie right. or, I, and I had to escape what I was doing. Um, it's interesting. So it's like, you make desserts for these guys and you, it, it's kind of like, well, I've been a guitarist for this in this genius band forever, but then you go on your own and do your own band and you kind of realize, well, that's actually not the type of music that I want to play. Yeah. I mean, so working in that molecular gastronomy uh, universe was definitely a part of me and it's definitely influenced me and I, I'm actually pretty good at making desserts in that way. But that doesn't necessarily mean I wanted to make savory food that way. Yeah. So it really, like, like basically the, the, the existential crisis of I need to have my own restaurant. Don't know why, but I do. I've been grooming myself and my yeah. own brain for this my entire life. And then facing like, well, shit, what my resume is telling me, leading me to do isn't lining up for some reason. And yeah. I don't know why. I mean, Empeon was a, a, a reaction to all of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is. You did sort of, when you when you made that dramatic switch, it, it um, you know, it is interesting because very oftentimes you will see someone who goes from working in, in uh, you know, acclaimed kitchens and they go off and start, through, they do their own thing. And very often there is a period of time where you do kind of see the DNA of their mentors 
kind of being cycled through. You mm -hmm. kind of watch them. Uh, you know, there's a couple of dishes that you're like, oh yeah, of course this person worked for X, you know, these two people. And then eventually the, the ratio of that stuff to their own stuff changes. And that's a really interesting And then eventually it's their own stuff. But I think that's very common. You, you do see that a lot. That's a super um, interesting observation because I didn't realize that that was common, but that did happen to me yeah. where it's like you, you kind of revisit the stuff you used to be making and you do it and it is the same. Right. Clinically, technically, it's the same, but it doesn't feel the same anymore. Right. Yeah. Which means you've changed. Right. And then now at that moment, that feels horrible, but the, because you don't know what you've changed into yet or you haven't completely put your finger on it. Yeah. And again, because like. Because you've never been in the position to do it till you have your own place. Yes. And now opening a restaurant is a great fire under your ass to fucking figure it out right. because it's like, it's like having a child. Now it's here. Yes. It's crying. The customers are coming. It's it. You, like you are paying rent, you are paying salaries, you are paying all these things. Yeah. So, so figure it out. It, 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 it allows you to not meander about it where yeah. like, so I don't know how to say it. Like if I was a pastry chef uh, working for someone, I was much less motivated to, I came up with a new dessert when I felt like it. Right. But now what makes me feel like changing something is much more urgent. You know what I mean? It's like, are we nailing it for Midtown? Did we get it right? Did yeah. we get it 85% right? What's missing? What's wrong? Whether that's like you need this, like you you need a vegetarian thing on the menu. Or I'm just coming up with, or you should have put carpet upstairs or yes. the captain's uniform should look different than the back service uniforms or whatever, like all these like retroactive um, realizations. Yeah. You, you start going, well, shit, we need to get this done now. Because it starts to feel like sand slipping through your hand. Right. Like, if, you're, if you don't capture that, if you don't get that lightning in the bottle, well, what are you going to do? Because you just signed a 20-year lease. You know, it, it, totally. so, so fear... Is a great motivator. It's a, it's a wonderful motivator. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Chef Alex Stupak of MP Own Restaurants in New York City, and we'll be right back on Andrew Talks to Chefs. My theme song and break music is from After School Special's album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back to Andrew Talks to Chefs. We're here with Chef Alex Stupak. And we're going to... Alex, I'd love to just back up a little because um, we kind of leapfrogged it. But I'd yeah, love to sorry talk about, about that. No, it's okay. It happens. Um, what uh, I'd love to talk about sort of the path that got you to where you are. Um, you, you went from this... You went to the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. Uh, you graduated there in 01? Uh, let's see. It was... I'm not mistaken. 2000. May of 2000. May of 2000. Um, and then tell, tell me about some of your early uh, 
jobs, kitchen sure. jobs after that. So my first job out of culinary school was at True, uh-huh. a new restaurant in Chicago that just opened under um, Rick Tremonto and Gail Gand. Not to say that True was my second pick, but at the time, all I was doing was reading Charlie Trotter's cookbooks, all of them. That's all I, that's all I looked at. I was obsessed with them. Um, what about it was so... It just all seemed so new to me um, as, an, as an outsider to, to fine dining, just um, vegetables that you've never heard of or, um, you know, just the idea of like smoked goat cheese tortellini with like yellow tomato sauce and veal jus or the idea of like um, organ meats like Ofal was a big part of um, yeah. Charlie Trotter's MO. And all those things just seemed so foreign and exciting to me. Was it, all, was it also the ambition of those recipes? I mean, you look at some of those books and, you know, there'll be these extreme close-ups. And, yes. And like six recipes for one dish. And if you read it, you'll realize that the, the thing you're looking at is maybe like three inches by, you know, like it's actually an incredibly small yeah. piece of food relative to the labor. It, it was certainly that, like the visuals of it were striking, the content was striking, but then there was also the idea of um, how Charlie sort of, spoke about himself, like, or spoke, it was almost like chef as philosopher. Um, you know, you have this intellectual who's, um, you know, uh, quoting people like, uh, Ayn Rand or Carlos Castaneda and it's like, whoa. Um, so like the idea that a chef could be that yeah. really attracted me. Um, I was not able to get a job at Charlie Trotter's, um, but I was able to get a job at True, which I thought, well, like, well, I'm going to get into Chicago and, and then that's great. Um, that was my first job and I got thrown right into it. Um, I was not a pastry, I was not doing pastry at all. I wasn't even thinking about pastry back then. Um, I got thrown right into the hot app station and I was making risotto and soup for, you know, 200 people a night at a fancy restaurant. I enjoyed the intensity of being a line cook and more than the intensity, what I enjoy about it most, um, and this is something like I kind of harken back to or am like nostalgic about now is that the the ability to be at a point in your life where you have no responsibility other than this myopic yeah. thing, you can really be in the zone. Like that station is your world. It's labeled perfectly. It's organized in a way that you know, um, and you're completely in control. That's a really cool feeling. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very rare. There's not many, you realize later, there's not many jobs yeah. like that. Yes, so the escape of it, um, uh, one of my culinary instructors said this to me, and I, it didn't add up until I got my first like serious line cook job, which was, he was like, don't let cooking be the cause of your problems. Let it be the escape from That's your problems. And he just explained it further. He's like, look, your girlfriend just broke up with you. What it, like, you're, like, whatever's happening in your life, he's like, you know, you put on your apron, you sharpen your knife, and you forget about it, and you just rip. Yeah. So... That's what I loved about it most. That's interesting. You, you, this thing about Charlie, sort of the chef is intellectual. Was that something that had been on your mind? Because um, it does strike. I don't know you well. I've only interviewed you once before. I've maybe met you once or twice. But you know, you you you, you seem like a highly intelligent person. Um, you you're obviously very well read. I've you know you you reference things in other interviews I've seen and whatnot. Was you know, and this is again, I'm, this is a, what I'm about to say. I guess is a mindset that's a little bit outdated, right? It's not. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the cliche used to be that people are drawn to cooking or, you know, there are people who didn't go to college and, and aren't that book smart, quote unquote, and all this stuff. Obviously, that's kind of an outdated cliche. Mm-hmm. But there is an element of that, I think, uh, in that people 
Uh, there are people who are drawn to the kitchen who aren't necessarily uh, drawn to other pursuits, let's say. Was this a concern for you as you were going into this world? Was that, when you mentioned that thing about Charlie, was that like a, was that a relief to you to no, see somebody it, like that? Or was it, it was, um, did I you wonder how you were going to fit into that world, I guess, based on it, the sort of reputation it had? I it, guess that's how I'd put it. It made my heart race. It, it was more like, um, it was more like someone just turned a light on for me or made me realize something. That like, the two things were mutually exclusive? That, that, that like, well, no, I, I never, I guess I never thought about it consciously, but like just the idea, I, look, you can present two different people the same idea, the same yep. content, the, yep. the same idea as like chef as philosopher. And someone could say, wow. And someone could go, okay, I don't care. That's bullshit. Like, so it, it, it was just that, so I think that's very personal, but for me, it just, the idea of it really resonated with me that like there can be philosophy, poetry, um, uh, challenging aspects to a dish, meaning like it, like the, the overall idea of a, a restaurant being a pleasurable experience, but also taking you out of your comfort zone in very intelligent ways. Yes. So like reading about Charlie Trotter and saying, well, I'm going to introduce organ meats to people. Um, but like in talking about how he does it, like by pairing it with something more comforting, like mashed potatoes or, or, or things like that, that really, I thought that was such a cool approach. Yeah. I, I never thought about food that way. Um, so that, whether and you know how sometimes you realize something it gets under your skin but you didn't realize how much it got under your skin mm -hmm. so that was that for me yeah. um the next big thing that um was happening that kind of pushed me into the pastry kitchen was um when we all started hearing about el bully stateside yep. that was that was the game changer so i you know now all of a sudden out of nowhere, you wake up the next morning and everyone's trying to put everything in a ISI siphon and aerate it. Yeah. Um, so take, let's talk about that moment. For, so this is your big, if I'm not mistaken, you, you, you were then at Clio mm -hmm. in Boston. Yes. And Ken Oranger, what's the story? You, so so th there's, a, there's a backstory to the story. So when I did my externship for culinary school, yeah. it was Clio. Okay. So I had already worked for Ken on his garmage station for... Um, for six months, like yeah. when I was, so what happened was I moved back to Boston and I took a job, um, at my first sous chef job at a, an intermediate restaurant. It was not Clio. And that oddly turned into my first pastry chef job. And that was not organic. It was me being an opportunist. So I had decided because I was, and this is just a silly reason to do it, but it was enough to push me. Um, I was, I'd memorized Albert Adria's first cookbook mm -hmm. and it changed the way I thought about everything and I wanted to cook like that meaning what meaning so if if Charlie Trotter's books were about chef as philosopher um you know Albert Adria's first book was about decoding everything it was about flavor transmission it was it wasn't even pastry as dessert it was pastry as okay, I'm going to put coffee and passion fruit together, but how do I put them together? Is the coffee an ice cream? Is it a sorbet? Is it a gelatin? Is it a crumble? And like the same thing, like they basically, the first time I ever saw spreadsheets applied to flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and the first time I ever saw, um, you know, modernity, but not modernity as um, thumbing your nose to tradition, modernity to like, again, being a scholar of tradition and decoding it and going, well, this is everything that has been done. Yeah. So now we know what we can't do. Yes. So I 
BS'd my way into my first pastry chef job. I was at, I was a sous chef at a restaurant. The pastry chef was fired and I told them I'll do the desserts and be the sous chef. I'll do both for the same amount of money, but you just have to let me do whatever I want on the dessert menu and you have to put my name on it. Yeah. So, which is really stupid and arrogant, but at the time that's what mattered to me. You stupid. Know, like, why? Well, just it, when, for me, when I was a young cook, the things that mattered to me most are the things that actually don't matter to me at all. You want the name on the jacket and you want, the name on the menu and you want the business card. And it's like, I, I don't want any of those things anymore, but those like those silly little things right. are like when you're young and you're ambitious for me, they were like a symbol that you made it. Yep. Which they're not, you can give a business card to anyone. It doesn't right. matter. Um, but yeah, so I started, um, tinkering in this pastry kitchen and making these desserts like deconstructed carrot cake and all this stuff, which was just completely indirectly influenced by Albert. And I was doing it in a restaurant where those things very much didn't belong. Yeah. I was doing it in a very old school Boston uh, restaurant where the average person eating there was like 55 to 75. Right. So would have been happy with a piece of cheesecake or they were, they were unhappy yeah. with what I was making. Um, simultaneously, Ken Oranger um, and I hooked up, he caught wind that I was there and he, he was, um, tendering the idea of actually having a p pastry chef at Clio for the first time. Yeah. So it was just a very logical move to me because yeah. Ken is on the progressive side of things or he's, um, he's more open-minded to it. Um, but anyways, it, it seemed like a match made in heaven and I worked for him for quite a while. I think I was with him for like three or four years Yeah. in this basement, sort of tinkering away, um, and the cool thing about working in a small restaurant where it's you and a staff of one is that you can actually make a lot of mistakes and not be embarrassed. Yeah. Because you're not selling 200 portions or 1,000 portions of dishes a night. You're selling 30, and you made everything yourself. So it's a lot of hard work, but it, it kind of was um, because I was left alone in a basement for so long – it was kind of the beginning of like sort of a lot of my own thoughts, um, like the idea of like, well, okay, well, I'm copying Albert, but now what can I do? I'm inspired by him and I understand the approach. So now how can I make things that haven't been made before? Right. And that's what that was all about. That was like, if you compare art, like paintings, or whatever, like that was like real modern art where it was starting to be more about the act of doing it yes. than the result. I mean, the results were tremendous, but it was more about like, okay, well, you guys are using these paintbrushes. We're going to put those paintbrushes down. Otherwise, we're all going to be painting the same thing forever. When you start do when you start doing that, when you have this huge lightning bolt of inspiration like you did from Adria, what was your, I guess, what was your maturity level when you started making those first desserts? In other words, was it just sort of um, unbridled uh, yeah, it was, creativity to use that word that it, neither it, of us loves? Was it was it was did your enthusiasm get the best of you? Yeah, I so guess, when so, you look back. Well, look, I mean, people liked the desserts, but when results can be always be hit or miss when the point of it in your head is well, I have to make a crazy flavor combination. Sometimes a crazy flavor combination works, sometimes it doesn't. Um later I kind of learned that no flavor combination is crazy. It's just it, like it's either founded in um a working principle or it's not. Mm -hmm. Now this sounds exciting. Like this became exciting to me because you can obscure the reference point and you can remove something once or twice yep. from the reference point where it's completely unrecognizable, but then people love it. Yeah. But they don't realize your reference. Like, so like, like, I mean, I could break it down. Like the idea of like take peanut butter and jelly, like, okay. So 
forget nostalgia, forget what you grew up. Now just start clinically looking at the nature of the flavor of the jelly and the nature of the flavor of the peanut butter Mm -hmm. and go, okay, well, this is nutty and salty and this is sweet and acidic. Now start writing things underneath those two columns. So that's how you can arrive at a flavor combination like passion fruit and tahini or black currant and black sesame. And I would do things like that all day long at places like WD-50 and Alinea. But that's you would just I, be sitting around making lists like this. Yes. Um, and we would make those desserts and we would serve them. And people are like, man, I've never had a flavor combination like that. And it's so delicious. And it's like, but behind the scenes, it's like, well, black currant is the jelly and black sesame is the peanut butter. And, yep. and when I say twice removed, it's like you, you've erased the literal, the, the flavor, but then you can remove it again by changing the texture of the form. Mm-hmm. So maybe that thing that was normally peanut butter is now frozen or maybe it's aerated, or maybe it's right. a crumbled, or like you start, mani- so I love, I fell in love with pastry in that way because you're so free to manipulate ingredients at a way that is more or less unacceptable with savory food. Did you, um, is it always that linear a thought process for you? In other words, you know, do you ever just sometimes wake up with an idea for a combination, you know, wake up in the morning, or I've had chefs tell me they've dreamt a di- an idea for a dish. Or is, yeah, it, is, it, no. is it usually this methodical for you? It's always been very rigid it is. for me. Um, and it's it just recently at Empeon, not to jump forward, but it's, it's becoming um, more and more rigid again in a different way. Not what I was doing then, but in a new way where, like, you have to set your own boundaries and your own set of rules. Mm-hmm. They can be really weird, unique, personal rules. But back to, like, if the meta goal is to be known for something right. when you die or when you're done with all of this, you have to start playing by some sort, you have to apply some sort of consistency to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, whatever that is. I mean, and... Well, I think I know what you mean. You mean some kind of consistency of like a, establishing a like a, a defined sensibility? Yeah. Like, yeah. well, what is... Okay, so... Name cook, it. Like, you cook Mexican cuisine. Okay, so what? We all do. Like, it can't right. just be that. It has to be like, well, why, what does Mexican cuisine mean at Empeon and what are the facets of it? And you write down what those facets are and then you, you've decided these are them, but now you can hold that, um, like whatever that is that you can hold that set of rules up against your entire menu every day. So it becomes like a decision-making template. Yes. And it like, it either fits the form or it doesn't. Now, again, I'm incredible. I said, I'm incredibly rigid. So now I'm using the and my menu based on this epiphany. My menus are not all there yet, but that's great because now it gives me clear work to do. Not like sooner or later, if you just go like, "Well, I don't like this. This sucks," and you can't answer the reason why, you can understand you start to go crazy in your own head. Like like if you're beating yourself up or you're editing yourself, well, why? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like no, like so. A big part of that came from um, working with Jordana Rothman on um, my first cookbook. So. She's such a talented writer, and she values her time so much. I mean, she just really, the question is, like, why are we doing this? Yeah. She's writing a story as if she's chiseling it into granite. Yes. Meaning, why does this need to exist? You and, mean the book itself? Yeah. I'm. Why are we doing this? But not yeah. the book itself, but then every taco in that book. Like, why does it exist? Why are we doing that? And if you can't back, if you can't talk about that, if I can't write a paragraph, yeah. even if it's a poorly written paragraph by me if I couldn't communicate that to her yes it had to get scratched yeah um and so in many ways like that that has begun to inform 
how we work going forward. You know, Mm -hmm. so back in pastry, it was about, it had to be a new flavor combination or it had to be a new technique or it had to be something that sort of, um, I don't know, threw you for a loop. Yeah. That was the rule. Um, the loop that I'm trying to throw you for now, it's just a different loop. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's a bigger, it's a bigger loop, which goes back to like the idea of like, okay, well we're a two top. We just sat in a Manhattan restaurant in a fancy part of town and we just spent $250 on dinner and we had tacos on the table and that all felt good. Like, and that might sound like a silly little thing, but like, again, it's like, if you can, if you can get the taco to successfully manifest in multiple price points, in multiple styles of restaurants in New York city, it goes back to what I said about sushi or pasta. If you can run that gamut and have people love it and it belongs that changed something. Yeah. Because what I hear still to this day is that, well, that's expensive for Mexican and Mexican should be cheap. And like, so those cultural issues, I mean, like, they, I, I mean, we weren't in New York City at this time, but once upon a time, I would imagine Italian immigrants weren't that popular in New York City. I would imagine they were kind of looked down upon, you know what I'm seeing? And now like you have, a, a, you have the need for Italy and yeah. you have people who like, you have home cooks who have opinions about whether they want to cook risotto with a Borio rice or carnaroli rice, right. but that's cultural shift. Right. That, that's, that's, that's change. Yes. That's real change. Yeah. So the loop we're trying to throw you for is like, I mean, we often try to erase the, this will sound weird, but we try to erase the Mexicanness of it, meaning in the environment. Yes. Just we try to make it a, an interesting contemporary looking restaurant because, again, when I go back to like many Italian restaurants in New York City to this day, they just look like cool restaurants. Yeah. It's like modern, nice contemporary restaurants. They don't look they don't uh, shove eth- ethnicity down down your throat. Yeah. And in that way, you can start to. Um, this is a touchy subject, but then you can start to, as an outsider, feel like it's a part of your everyday life. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, you'll start, like, really do that, you'll start seeing tortilla factories popping up in Manhattan. You'll yep. see a need for them, yeah. the same way that there's a need for matzah factories. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a big goal, and I don't think it's going to be done by me or, like, right. any one person. Right. But it's kind of like, and here's the other part of it, too. It's like, the problem... The thing I miss about being an employee is you can wake up and reinvent yourself whenever you want, meaning you can quit your job or you can yeah. like, whereas like once you open a restaurant and sign a lease, now you've kind of, it's going to force you to like look into the abyss. It's like you, you have to be known for something and you got to kind of decide what you're going to be known for and you have to evolve that. Yes. So back to the idea of like, well, how am I editing the menus now? Well, is it are there tacos on the menu and are they worth it? Not just tacos for tacos sake. Are they awesome tacos at varying levels? Not like, well, here's an expensive taco because I put a five Wagyu on it. That would have mm-hmm. been me four years ago, but now it's different. And we're really questioning what tacos mean in all right. different restaurants. Are we manipulating masa? Are we working with it both in traditional ways and highly untraditional ways to get people to look at this ingredient? Um, do we still have a passion for pastry? And if we do, it needs to manifest in all the restaurants, not in a big grandiose way, but it needs to manifest. So I have a bar on St. Mark's and Avenue A, and right now there are no desserts on the menu, and I just said I'm a passionate pastry chef. So as an editor, I'm calling bullshit on myself, and that's something I need to fix. Yeah. Or um, why not just have a, at least one hyper-traditional Mexican dish on every menu 
as um, a juxtaposition or as a focal point right. or as just a proof that you actually do understand the reference point. A lot of people think I don't because I get it. I'm a white guy from Massachusetts talking the way I'm talking right now. I get why people would think that, but maybe you should have tamales colados or vuelva la vida or something like hyper-regional on that menu amidst all the mash notes. You, you alluded a minute ago to the touchiness. You said this can be a touchy subject. You know, you as an outsider, yeah. quote-unquote. Does that... I, I don't know. If it's, I just throw it out this, bro, does that get on? You talked about used the term "get under your skin" before. Does that bug you? It's. It seems like it's a it's a it's a weird conversation, um, and I and I, I've I've had it several times, and I I'm sensitive to all sides, and I see all sides. Where yeah. like I, I've heard the the argument of like, okay, well, um, white male tattooed chef now making something that my great grandmother used to make but now you're getting all of this attention for it mm-hmm. and you're charging more money for it. I, I get that. Um, I, I get that side of the argument. Um, and the other side of it to me is that we don't, we just charge Manhattan prices for Manhattan food and it's up to Manhattan to decide if we're up to snuff or not, mm-hmm. whether it be you know, our diners or critics or whatever, that, that it's just as simple as that. Yeah. And my stance is, I, and I get the sensitivity of it, but my stance is that like from my, from my experiences of Mexican cuisine, nothing, no one, no cosmopolitan city could ever disrupt, truly appropriate. To me, appropriation would be like, you're, you took credit for this. Like meaning mm-hmm. someone else did this. Right. And, and you fooled everyone into thinking you did it. Plagiarism. Yeah. That, yeah. To, to me, that's what real appro- – like, and for me, that's almost impossible. Like, right. like, I've actually made it impossible because either if we make the actual genuine article, we cite the source. And again, like, if you go on our website right now, I, I like, back to can you write a paragraph about every dish or multiple – so I have a blog now that no one reads, but I do that as a filter where it's like, well, if I can't blog it, I can't do it. It's got to go or it's, it's, it's marked to go off the menu. So if same we, principle as the book, same principle. Um, yeah. So if we do the gen and maybe I'm trying to do some legwork or some preparation for the next book. Um, but yeah, if we do the genuine article, we have to cite the source. That's, that's fair. Yes. We, did, we did not create this. Sure. This is how they make it here. Yeah. This is how we differentiated. Or again, the the source can be like it's so manipulated or mashed up that it's not it can't be an insult to the original anymore. So that's a a big part of what we do, which is that we um, reserve the right to uh, continue with free association. Yeah, because I think that's a very good path. Like meaning, like here's a great story. Like when I was at WD fifty, I forget what the dessert actually was, but it had yuzu on it, and uh, a young girl who clearly travels the world and eats at restaurants, you know, Japanese girl, she was like, you know, I never would have thought of using yuzu in a, in a dessert. And I was like, well, when I tasted it, that's all I could think of. Right. But again, so now she's telling me that in traditional Japanese cuisine, yuzu is not used that way. It's used as yuzu kosho or it's for savory food. Same thing with Mexican cuisine, hoja santa leaf, this big lily pad looking herbal leaf that, again, if I gave it to any American and said rub it in your fingers and smell it, they'd say it's root beer. It smells like root beer. It smells like sassafras. So we would, of course, all think of that in a sweet context. It's never, ever historically used in sweets ever in Mexico. So that's fascinating. So like we try to reserve, preserve our stance as outsiders to it, yep. meaning 
we're allowed to be outsiders. We're allowed to go experience something, be fascinated by it, and do something different with it than that culture would. And I still think that's a positive towards the culture because it's raising awareness of something. Yes. So so long as it's raising awareness of the original, I I, I think it's all positive. But you like, can sleep at night. But with but that. sometimes I've heard these arguments about appropriation. Like no one's actually come out and said this, but the the point that the opposing side is sort of seeming to make is that only Mexicans can cook Mexican food and only Chinese people can cook Chinese food and only Indians can cook Indian food. And I think that I'll call bullshit on that yeah. any day. Well, I'm, this is the part of it that I don't understand. Yeah. So yeah, like, I mean, I, I'm completely with you. I just don't understand. I'm not insensitive to any, I'm not insensitive to any point of view, but I, I don't It just doesn't, it and, doesn't calculate for me. And the other part of it is that like, I still could, I consider all cuisines as, ethnic or a genre so i consider french that way right. i consider spanish cuisine yep. like so for me it's not like brown people food and white people food yeah it's just food and if you look at every cuisine there's always like the humble roots and then there's the exaltedness or the three michelin star whatever but the interesting thing was when you look myopically at any one of those cultures el bulli did not destroy Sp traditional spanish cuisine yeah. last time i checked it's doing just fine yeah right michelle bra did not uproot like the the traditional bouchon yes and he never could yeah and no so certainly no outsider could ever disrupt or destroy a, a, a traditional sure but I, I i think it's healthy to look at something so vast and fascinating as a never-ending source of inspiration yeah um totally different note but i'm interested it's something that always is interesting to me uh your wife lauren mm -hmm. is a pastry chef yes uh you guys now is it you have two kids now? two kids um is she still pastry chefing or is that not right now? Okay. So no. she was the pastry chef at Empeon. She was, she was yeah. the pastry chef at Taqueria and Cocina yeah. when we opened. Um, and you guys met years ago. We met at Clio. Early in your career yeah. at Clio. Yeah. We, what, uh, what, my sense is that it's, it's, you know, you said earlier, you were talking about being a young line cook, you know, you just no time for a girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's always seemed to me um, I mean, the question of you two working together is a whole nother topic, but that uh, in a lot of respects, the perfect partner personally for a chef is another person in the business. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is that, is that the, has that been the case with the two of you? Yes, because um, solidarity is built in and it's all implicit. So, you know what I mean? Like, again, like, like if you're 20 something and you're working in kitchens you're i mean look you're you're the rag doll of that business meaning they're going to call you and say you have to come in and work a sixth day or a seventh day yep. you have to work a double you have to work christmas you have to work new year's eve you have to work all those things so when i say like someone who's not in that business pretty soon they're going to break up with you or be cheating on you or both just because you're not there yeah <laughs> you're absent yes you know what i mean so it's like you almost the challenge is how do you even build a relationship because you can't be present because yeah. you're working. I mean, times have changed, but back, like to me, a 65, 75 hour week was very normal for me. A, a 14 hour day, a 15 hour day was very normal. So the idea of like, hey, let's go out and it's like, I'm tired and like, I got to wake up early tomorrow. It like, that's a relationship killer. So yeah, I, I don't know how I could be in a, I could have ever had been in a relationship if it wasn't for someone who, you know, is going through the same struggle. Yeah. Interesting. So I'd love to just take a, a minute. We're kind of, I, I, I do want to talk for a minute about the time you spent uh, with Grant sure. at Alinea and with Wiley at WD50 because they're such important restaurants. Um, uh, 
What was you went you went to Alinea in 05? Yes. Um, as the pastry chef. Uh, just, I'd love to just know at that time, at that restaurant, what was the culture of that restaurant like? And what was the excitement factor of being there at that time? It was really intense. Um, I was in a unique position. I was the last kitchen team member hired. Um, they were kind of going through a debate of whether they were going to have a pastry chef or not. Uh, Curtis Duffy mm-hmm. was the one doing all the desserts when they were at Trio, and he had no interest in being the pastry chef of this restaurant. He would have done it if Grant had told him to, but um, he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, Grant was on the fence of the importance of a pastry chef. Uh, Nick Kokonis, his partner, actually pushed him to hire me. Um, he didn't want to hire me, for the record, because I negotiated with him over my salary. <laughs> um, so, but, but it was, um, it was a, the moment I got hired, um, it was a tremendous amount of pressure that I put on myself because I was reading the murmurings of this restaurant and it sounded like people were expecting Grant to walk on water Yeah, and to come up with a dessert program that supports that expectation. Um, it, it's exciting, but it's also scary and daunting. Yeah. Um, Alinea was intense. Uh, Grant is uh, still to this day, he's uh, like the hardest working chef I know. Mm-hmm. Um, Which uh, means what at this level? I mean, you're t- you know, you've worked with some pretty hardcore people. Like, what's the thing? What's that last 10%? Well, like, when I, you I, say that, what is it you think of about him? I think that the natural evolution of a chef, which he has embraced it like like crazy, which is the idea of like, okay, well, one, we're running a restaurant, now we're running restaurants, multiple. Yeah. And on top of that, the other evolution is like, well, chef is usually like, well, I'm going to make sure everything in the kitchen is perfect. Grant's evolution is the natural evolution of a, a creative person, which is like, well, everything has to be like everything I touch, whether it's the chairs or the training materials yeah. or the or the music or the lighting or the whatever. He has his hands on all of it. Now, why when I say he's the hardest working, because in tandem with all that, he has not stepped back in the kitchen. He is still cooking in those kitchens every night. Yeah. So that's rare. That that is rare. Yeah. So I mean, just full disclosure, I'm in all of my restaurants every day except for Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am not expediting in my kitchens anymore. And sure. like and I'm the only time I'm really truly touching food is when we're working on something new or we're editing something that's pre existing. Otherwise I'm I'm present, but I'm I'm staring at the machine as opposed to being in the machine. Yeah. Um, I get the sense with Grant that he's still very much in his machine while all the while staring at it. Yeah. Which means he's he's burning the candle at both ends. And and with the kind of high powered microscope that was on that restaurant at that time, is that is that something that I mean yet you described it as being a little scary going in. Did you quickly adapt to that or I, I mean, I did. It, like, Grant, was, that a, was that a rush for you? What was the? What it was is. It? I mean, Grant's an incredibly quiet and also very confident person. Yeah. Um, in that he was just like, "We're going to get four stars from the Tribune." It wasn't, "Oh, are we?" Or I don't know. Or maybe they won't like it. He was like, "We are getting it," and yeah. he did. Um, it, again, it, it, with with Grant, there's no regard for um, anything other than the goal. So you're, you're talking about 16 hour days. Sometimes you're talking about, um, a lot of chefs throw around the term, whatever it takes. Yeah. Most of them don't mean it the way Grant means it. Grant really does mean whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's my experience with him. Um, 
and, and in very, but another odd part of um, my working relationship with him was that he was actually incredibly laissez-faire with me in that he wasn't controlling, uh, like meaning he, every dessert I ever made was given to him and approved by him. But I was very much used to working with a chef who was like, well, we're, you're, you need to do something with melon now because I really want that. Or, yeah. like, or like, I never got any direction like that from him. He, like, his belief is that, like, well, if you're a creative person, well, then prove it. Go create. So that was really fascinating to me. That is fascinating. What was the, uh, how did you think about, um, you know, somebody with the, the point of view that you have, the strong point of view and sensibility, you know, now you have your own restaurants, right? But at that time, you were the pastry chef, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, what you serve comes at the tail end of this experience that people have had. How did you approach doing that there? And I guess maybe it's a good transition point versus, say, when you come to WD-50. Like, how would you think about how you kind of plugged into the organism, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a good pastry chef has, can just inherently feel the style of the restaurant or like the goals of the restaurant. I mean, you can, you can go there, eat the food, look at the presentations, look at the plate where it's on here. Like what's the music that's playing? What are the servers where, how does it all feel? And obviously your job is to fit in with that. You're kind of like, when I think about being a pastry chef in a restaurant, it's kind of like a relay race and you're the, you're the anchor man. You're the last one that hands a baton, which, I love that. Yeah. which actually is true. Like, you have to be, um, you act literally, you have to be the fastest. Um, just think about like nuts and bolts stuff of like, okay, well, this guy's waiting for a medium well piece of lamb and they had to make him wait 35 minutes. And it's like, well, the dessert, you can't make people wait 35 minutes for the dessert. The dessert has to be fast. It has to be um, a different level of efficiency mm-hmm. in order to round out that experience. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if, let's say someone sat for too long, let's say if someone sat for two hours, but it was supposed to be an hour and a half. The, the 30 minutes that it took for the meat course to come out is not what will get shit on. It's the 30 minutes that it took for the dessert. Yeah. That's when people are pissed off. That's when people are tired. They're starting to get full. They're starting to get sick of their dining companion. They're kind of running out of things to say. Yeah. So I, I think a really good pastry chef is actually sensitive to those things. Mm-hmm. And still being able to, and I also think a really good pastry chef can transmit their own unique point of view, still, but still be a member of the band. Meaning, like, right. once upon a time, I was making desserts that didn't fit in the restaurant. Well, I mean, like, it, but, like, it's like, okay, well, like, Motley Crue is an awesome band, and Tommy Lee was the drummer for it, so he was integral in Motley Crue, but he also had his own thing going on. Right. And he had his own cult following within it, so I think a good pastry chef could be like that. Is that how you would think about yourself? I don't think of my, myself like Tommy Lee. No, no. but, I mean, <laughs> did, you, did you have that kind of analogy going in your head as you thought about how it all fits yeah, together? Yeah, you, you have your... You start to conscious, it's, it's a maturity thing. You start to realize like, well, I, this is not my restaurant, but right. I'm, an important, I'm an important part of this restaurant. So what, what can I do to help fortify and galvanize this restaurant? What can I do to help make it better? Yeah. And simultaneously, how can I be technically supportive? Yeah. It, it, whatever that means. And, yeah. it, and every job is unique and every job is different. Right. Um, that's very different than, than running the entire show. Yeah. It, it's just, and, and, and now that you run the entire show, you come across different personalities as pastry chefs or chefs or whatever. And, and some are really good and like, there's all different types yeah. and, and you can identify them because I have during different periods of time in my career been some of these types. I've been the arrogant know-it-all type mm-hmm. who's not even aware of the entire restaurant. They're just think they're this little God in this corner. Yeah. 
But because I've been that for a short period of time, I can identify it and I can either mitigate it, manage it, or just pluck it out of the restaurant. And that just, that's the person's choice. Right. Um, let's talk just before we wrap up, I'd, I'd love to get the story of the trans, the, the background on your interest and, um, education on Mexican food. Sure. Um, this, if I'm under, if I heard the story, right, it kind of started for you during your Chicago days. It, it did. It, it, it may have started a hair earlier than that. No, it did. Um, a hair so, earlier because you and Lauren were already Lauren together. Lauren and I were together before that. In Boston, right. Yeah, um, but we didn't know that we were going to be together. So basically, I left. I got a job at Alinea, and she was my girlfriend at the time, and I said, well, I'm leaving. Yeah. I was like, you can come if you want. If you don't want to, I get it. And it was very sad, and I left, and she How did, long have you guys been together at that point? Uh, gee, uh, probably a year and a half. Okay. Um. And again, end of October, we've been together 10 years, right. married, and yes. we've been together longer than that. So it's worked out. But no, I, I said, I'm leaving. And she said, well, I'm not following you. And I said, well, if you change your mind, I'll be here waiting for you. And she waited several months. I can't remember how many. And then finally, she said she made the move. She moved mm -hmm. to Chicago with me. Um, but we were, I mean, again, it's like she was working a million hours at Bittersweet Bakery, and I was working a million hours at Alinea. And we didn't know anyone there. Chicago's a very different, at least it was then, a very different restaurant community. Whereas New York City, everyone kind of knows everyone. Yeah. Everyone sees everyone, everyone talks. It's very, it's it's a little, It's from my experience, it's less incestuous there. Um, Part of that's just geography, right? I mean, New I York's so. just, it's small, everybody's a foot soldier. Yeah, it's, I think it's geography. It's I think it's lifestyle. Together. I think it's lifestyle. I think you have to eat out at restaurants there in New York, whether you like it or not. Um, which forces you to bump into people. But again, so we would, we were very isolated and we were working a million hours and like we would cook at home. And Lauren is half Mexican. Lauren's American. Um, her mother is Mexican, so she's half Mexican. And she was brought up with tasty, I don't know what you call it, like California style or like Rancho style, like really like, like housewife, good, awesome enchiladas yeah. type home cooking. Yeah. And she would make stuff like that for me. Um, that her making stuff like that for me and how delicious it was made me want to learn how to make it for her. And that's when I started picking up Rick Bayless's cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And I and like just again like I'm, I'm friends with Rick now, but he was never the type of chef that I was into coming up because I was into these like weird, intense Charlie Trotter types. But when you really read his books and you get past how um, congenial. And welcoming they are, right? You kind of realize he's being congenial and welcoming to really push forward some daunting stuff to Americans, and yeah. he had been doing it for a long time. Yeah, and it was really fascinating. And like once you start looking at all these techniques, yep, it throws everything out the window. So it's like if learning how to make foam the way El Bulli did, you know, was questioning like mincing shallots and poiling fish. Mexican cuisine was that all over again in a much bigger, deeper way for me. Like the just simple concepts of intentionally burning things mm -hmm. or the idea of like, no, you don't use stock or broth here. You use water and actually stock or broth will make it worse. It'll throw off the flavor or the idea of like Maillard flavors coming from the vegetable kingdom and not the meat kingdom. And like all, all these things are, or ingredients that were new, like wahe seeds or avocado leaves. Well, I just started getting really interested in it. And I happen to be living in Chicago, which is like, I think it's the second biggest Mexican population in the country. I'm, I'm not certain on that, but there are certainly 
vast Mexican neighborhoods with incredible Mexican grocery stores, the types of places where you can buy 30 limes for a dollar or buy chayote. But what kind do you want? Do you want the white one, the green one, or the spiny one? And that was just all so new to me. It was like discovering white truffles all over again. Right. Um, so all that did was plant the seed of like, you know, hey, honey, if, if we ever get a chance to take a vacation, we got to go to Oaxaca or we got to go to Mexico City. And we did. And it took it even further for me. It like... I never went to those places researching tacos, but tacos just blew me away because of like, I, I was an American. I, I, I'm an American. I have this beef, chicken, pork mentality when it comes to a taco. And just the idea of like, oh, people eat vegetables on tortillas. Oh, this guy just sells lamb head tacos. And not only is it lamb head, it's what part of the head do you want on it or what combination? It just blew me away and it was so epiphanal for me because I knew like, well, like we have no idea in America still to this day. Yeah. Collectively, we have no freaking clue how cool this is. Um, and there's so much to be done with it. Just replicating it is awesome. But twisting it and making it into these sort of mash no creation that were like, it just really got under my skin. Like the idea of like having a tortilla, it like having, having good corn masa to be pressed out and put on a griddle, flipped twice, watch it inflate, and then serve it to someone, that flavor for me, like, like I realized I had never had a tortilla before. Yeah. You hear people say, like, well, you've never had a baguette or a croissant until you've gone to Paris. Maybe that's true. Well, that's what this was like. It was like, shit, we've never had tortillas before, and they're awesome. I mean, if, if I were to open a new restaurant tomorrow and it wasn't Mexican, I would still opt for tortillas as my bread program. I just would, uh, just just the awesomeness of it. So that happened, and all the while I was, I mean, I left. We left Chicago because we wanted to move to New York. Um, we just as a place, we did not want to settle in Chicago, and so obviously I had to get another pastry chef job. But all the while I was kind of, I was trying to settle in with the fact that like my first restaurant might be a Mexican restaurant because it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. And I got shot down. I got shot down by investors over and over, and I flip-flopped. Where, like, I'd be like, here's a complete business plan for a Mexican restaurant. And people would be like, this is, I will never invest in this. And by the way, no one else will ever invest in this ever because you are not pedigree to do this. You You're not that guy. You would not. I, why would I ever take this bet? They were like, by the way, you've never even been an executive chef in a restaurant before, let alone a Mexican restaurant. So thank you for wasting my time. So I would get that type of feedback and I would flip flop. I would write another business plan about, well, here's my hyper modern thing. The best way I could describe writing that business plan for that hyper modern thing would be like planning a wedding for a girl that you're engaged with and it all makes sense and you've been together for a long time, but you know you really don't want to marry that girl. Yeah. Because like a business plan forces you to like, well, what is your plateware? What are what are your what are your and like you have to live in it a little bit. Yeah. Now you're, like you're, now you're, vi you're it, visualizing this whole existence. These little meaningless things like a yeah. gla like glassware plates are are symbolizing your commitment to something much bigger. Right. Um, but basically, I got to the point where I got I got shot down so much by investors that I got to the point where I, I got to the point where I didn't give a shit anymore. And once I started not giving a shit anymore, meaning I was so sure that I was going to do this one way or another, once I started talking that way, once I started, I stopped talking about check averages or demographics yeah. or all these friggin' things that are supposed to go. Once I stopped talking about that and talked about this, the way I'm talking to you about it right now, all of the money manifested. That, that's, 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 that's how it got done. But I had to go through that experience. Yeah. You had to, I had to get tossed around a little bit until I got to the point where I'm like, people like, well, 
I'm not really interested in fancy Mexican. If you ever want to do a burrito place, let me know. See, once upon a time, I'd be like, okay, I'll start planning the burrito place. Right. And then that investor's gone. See, like, if you're still at that point where, like, someone's critique can sway you, yeah. well, you got some more growing to do. You need some... So doing investor dinners in our apartment, um, which is small, um, Lauren and I look back and we're like, we don't know how we did it. And it'd be tough for us to do it again. It's like you get in the Marine Corps when you're 18... Try doing it again when you're 37. It, it, you don't it, know how you did it. You mean logistically? Logistically, of the space? Lo- logistically, I don't know how we did what we did when we look back at it. Um, it, w- it was crazy. But again, going through these um, these negative experiences of people, like you learn, there's a lot of people out there with money who have no interest in actually investing in you, and yeah. they like to feel important. They like because, the dance because they have the, they like that. Yeah. Um, I dealt with a lot of people like that, and it. I consider it a negative experience, but the positive of it was it got me to a point to talk in very clear terms. So when yeah. I did get in front of the right people, finally, I was ready. Yeah. Did you, um, you know, it's interesting to me, you talk about, you know, the way you found kind of your voice for pitching the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know what, forget the the eth- ethnicity of the food. You know, the shift that you made, the style of the food was so um, stark mm-hmm. from what you'd been doing. Um, and it, it is interesting to me, you know, I, I caught this thing that you had, I, I saw that you had said, you know, three key moments in your culinary development, you yeah. know what I'm about to say? Yeah. One was touching a black truffle. One was making a stable foam. And the third one was tasting a freshly made taco. And what was interesting to me was that the taco was the one where you talked about your own experience as an eater. Yeah. It, it, um, as opposed to a technician or a, or a cook. Um, uh, it, it seemed almost to take me back. I don't want to be too precious about it, but it almost seemed to take me back to the thing with the Russian dressing and and your mom. Totally. And that thing of making your, yourself happy. This food really just on a gut level, it seems to me, you can intellectualize the hell out of it, but it's just some, you just really like eating this. Well, stuff. yeah, and it, that that's that thing. So going back to the idea of like, well, I used to play in this band and we used to do like progressive rock, but now I've done my own band. And like like you said, well, now I'm going to, play progressive rock, but I'm, now I'm kind of getting it on my system. Right. And I, like you kind of realize about yourself, well, I'm not that. Like this is what I, I mean, like very simply what I know about myself is that when savory food gets too styled out for me or gets too styled out or too fancy or too, I don't, it starts to not sit well with me personally. On what, and what, on what level? Meaning like, I, again, like we can talk about the difference between pastry and savory because there's, there's many differences. Sure. It? Like, see now I like, the differences, though, I like the stark difference. So I like my desserts to be very manipulated, very beautiful, very polished, very like I, I like that about it. Like and with savory food, again, I don't know how to say it, but I I I still like it to be um, hearty, yeah, and hot and like so. Again, yeah, it's like I get it. So it, it's a weird juxtaposition. It's kind of the inverse of the way this is for a lot of other people. Yeah, right. A lot of people go to the most. Um, for lack of a better word, fancy or intricate, whatever dinner, but all they ever want for dessert is some ice cream, right? Right, or a piece of, or some uh, petit four. Again, it's just one of those things where um, people eat dessert for a different reason than they eat savory mm-hmm. food. I love dessert because people eat it purely for pleasure, um, but I also love dessert intellectually because I can, like, how to say it? I can 
make a dish of strawberries for you where there's no actual strawberries on the plate if I wanted to. Because dessert becomes purely more about flavor transmission. Mm -hmm. Whereas savory food, if I'm going to give you a dish of cod, you expect to see the cod. Yeah. I can't pure, like I, you can do whatever you want. I don't want to. So it's weird, but like I, I still like a taco to be a taco. So that, 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 that's difficult sometimes to train your cooks because they're now thinking, well, you're Alex Stupak. So they start pulling out tweezers right. to, to put their taco together. And I'm like, you're, you're destroying it. It's the same way like sushi. When you have sushi, like the rice is still supposed to be warm, right? It's right. sushi, fish, it's craft. It's not art, it's craft. Yeah. So I think of a taco that way where it's like, no, it shouldn't be like chiffonaded cilantro and it shouldn't be micro cilantro. It should be just barely cut cilantro that's light and fluffy and it's just sprinkled on. Right. So it's weird. I get it. Like it's weird because I, I like two very different things and I like them in the same roof. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say I feel like the cuisine at all our restaurants is very refined, but it here, like Mexico has a different set of refinement. Right. Like there's a different set of criteria where if like, if you puree the shit out of that salsa and run it through a chinois, yeah. as opposed to crushing it in a molcajete, that didn't refine it from a Mexican perspective. That actually destroyed it. Yeah. You actually stripped it. Of what makes it. Of, of what made it, it special. Yeah. So... That, but that's fascinating to me because again, it like it forces you to relearn everything and mm-hmm. like. But just when it comes, like I mean, like another simple way of boiling it down. When it comes to my favorite food to eat, it's always Mexican. I mean, I love eating everything, but just something. If I had to eat one cuisine, like meaning like oh, like we're not going out in a restaurant to pick whether we want Chinese or Indian or Thai that night. Meaning yeah. like this is just food for me. Like for, like for me, it would be my adopted cuisine that I could if I could be brought up with it. Yeah. Because it runs again, it, like you have that, you have that fiery, spicy street style thing. You have that homey, comforting yeah. thing. You have, um, and you do have the high end thing. You have all of it. Yeah, you have all of it. But it's just so, and again, it's just so fascinating because it's so alien to us. It's so foreign to us. Yet it's so friggin' close. Yeah, it's the closest. It's right. the closest. Um, last question for you. You're mid thirties. Uh, Thirty seven. Thirty seven. Um, you know, you, you, you've made at least two big shifts in your professional career. Um, I mean, you've got a, now you've got a pretty big business under you. You've got a family. Um, you're only 37. The way your mind works, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I guess the question probably isn't, do you ever think you'll switch again? Cause that seems unlikely to me, but do you ever see yourself taking up something on the side, another type of food on the side? Could you see yourself just through I, your natural sort of curiosity and restlessness wanting to... I have some kind of adjunct to the Mexican yes, thing. Yes, yes. Um, and those things may manifest within Empeon, or maybe they be absorbed won't. into that, or maybe they won't. Um, but yeah, and the I'm highly interested in Indian cuisine. Okay. And I'm interested in it. I mean, I'm just interested in it. But there's um, there's actually a lot of fascinating physical similarities to it and Mexican mm-hmm. cooking which is why I've started to look at it. Like, I mean, like I've been like, this is very preliminary, but like I'm dreaming of a restaurant in London and I'm interested because Mexican cuisine's popping up there, but I feel like opinions are still very nascent. And in looking at the culture in the marketplace, I'm really looking at Indian cuisine and I, I'm very interested in studying how that makes a lot the of people sense. of London react with Indian cuisine because yeah. that would be, really inform me of Mexican, but just the, the cuisine, cuisine in and of itself, just, it's like, well, in Mexico, they use this much cumin, and in India, they use this much. And it's like, if you break it down, they both had tomatoes and onion in it. But the alchemy of it, you get two very different 
outputs, right. which is fascinating. The other one, all of Northern Africa, all of Morocco, Israel, Yemen, all, all these places. Mm-hmm. Again, Mexico is my foot in the door because if you look at, again, all the spices that we know of in Mexico, all yeah. like those interesting mixtures of like, allspice and clove and savory food like with cumin and black pepper and and the toasting of dried herbs and things like that that's very that's very um arabic that's very northern african um so those cuisines all fascinate me very much and again the ideas of flatbreads um i mean to close on it al pastor people are like this authentic taco and al pastor comes from tacos arabes which means arabic tacos it means lamb on a pita um so again, like, what, what do you mean by tradition? Right. Great. Alex, thanks for being here. Thank you. This was Really fun. enjoyed it. Thank you. And that's our first show. I want to give a huge thank you to Alex Stupak for taking a chance with us and being our first guest on Andrew Talks to Chefs. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, please do so on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Uh, You can also, if you're so inclined, give us a review. It really does help people find the show, which obviously I would love. You can follow uh, Andrew Talks to Chefs on Twitter and Instagram, at Chef Podcast. That's pretty easy to remember, at Chef Podcast. And you can follow me personally at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D, Andrew, on both Twitter and Instagram as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week here on Andrew Talks to Chefs.